0: You are listening to Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn Podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love.
1: This is episode 154, and I'm your host, Miguel. Everything you hear on this episode is fair use Creative Commons license.
0: The Way of the Superior Man by David Data 1. Stop hoping for a completion of anything in life. Most men make the error of thinking that one day, it will be done. They think, if I can work enough, then one day I could rest. Or one day, my woman will understand something, and then she will stop complaining. Or I'm only doing this now so that one day I can do what I really want with my life. The masculine error is to think that eventually things will be different in some fundamental way. They won't. It never ends. As long as life continues, the creative challenge is to tussle, play, and make love with the present moment while giving your unique gift. 2. Live as if your father were dead. A man must love his father and yet be free of his father's expectations and criticisms in order to be a free man. 3 never change your mind just to please a woman if a woman suggests something that changes a man's perspective then he should make a new decision based on his new perspective but he should never betray his own deepest knowledge and intuition in order to please his woman or go along with her both she and he will be weakened by such an action they will grow to resent each other and the crust of accumulated inauthenticity will burden their love as well as their capacity for free action. 4. Your Purpose Must Come Before Your Relationship Every man knows that his highest purpose in life cannot be reduced to any particular relationship. If a man prioritizes his relationship over his highest purpose, he weakens himself, deserves the universe, and cheats his woman of an authentic man who can offer her full, undivided presence. 5. Lean Just Beyond Your Edge In any given moment, a man's growth is optimized if he leans just beyond his edge, his capacity, his fear. He should not be too lazy, happily stagnating in the zone of security and comfort nor should he push far beyond his edge, stressing himself unnecessarily, unable to metabolize his experience. He should lean just slightly beyond the edge of fear and discomfort, constantly, in everything he does. Six, if you don't know your purpose, discover it now. Without a conscious life purpose, A man is totally lost, drifting, adapting to events rather than creating events. Without knowing his life purpose, a man lives a weakened, impotent existence, perhaps eventually becoming even sexually impotent or prone to mechanical and disinterested sex. 7. Be willing to change everything in your life. A man must be prepared to give 100% to his purpose, fulfill his karma or dissolve it, and then let go of that specific form of living. He must be capable of not knowing what to do with his life, entering a period of unknowingness and waiting for a vision or a new form of purpose to emerge. These cycles of strong specific action, followed by periods of not knowing what the hell is going on, are natural for a man who is shedding layers of karma in his relaxation into truth. 8. Don't use your family as an excuse. If a man never discovers his deepest purpose, or if he permanently compromises it and uses his family as an excuse for doing so, then his core becomes weakened and he loses depth and presence. His woman loses trust and sexual polarity with him, even though he may be putting much energy into parenting their children and doing the housework. A man should, of course, be a full participant in caring for children and the household, but if he gives up his deepest purpose to do so, ultimately everyone suffers. 9. Don't get lost in tasks and duties. Whatever the specifics of a man's purpose, he must always refresh the transcendental element of his life through regular meditation and retreat. A man should never get lost in the details of his life and forget that, ultimately and in truth, life amounts to nothing other than what is the deepest truth of this present moment. Tasks don't get a man anywhere more conscious or free, than he is capable of being in this present moment. 10. Don't force the feminine to make decisions. A man abandons responsibility by expecting that his woman will always make her own decisions and then be accountable for the results. This expectation is a withholding of his masculine gift It puts a woman in the position of magnifying her own masculine. It is good for some women to learn to animate their masculine capacity to make a decision and stick with it. But if a man abnegates his responsibility to provide his woman with the gift of masculine clarity and decisiveness, then she will become chronically sharp, angular, and distrustful of his love. She will cease surrendering in love with him, cease trusting his masculine capacity, and instead become her own man. 11. What she wants is not what she says. Sometimes a woman will make a request of her man, in plain English, not to get him to do something, but to see if he is so weak that he will do it. In other words, she is testing his capacity to do what is right, not what she is asking for. In such cases, if the man does what his woman asks, she will be disappointed and angry. The man will have no idea why she is so angry or what could possibly please her. He must remember that her trust is engendered not by him fulfilling her requests, but by him magnifying love, consciousness, and success in their lives, in spite of her requests. 12. She doesn't really want to be number one A woman sometimes seems to want to be the most important thing in her man's life. However, if she is the most important thing, then she feels her man has made her the number one priority and is not fully dedicated or directed to divine growth and service. She will feel her man's dependence on her for his happiness and this will make her feel smothered by his neediness and clinging. A woman really wants her man to be totally dedicated to his highest purpose, and also to love her fully. Although she would never admit it, she wants to feel that her man would be willing to sacrifice their relationship for the sake of his highest purpose. 13. She wants to relax in the demonstration of your direction. A woman must be able to trust you to take charge if she relaxes her own masculine edge. This is true financially, sexually, emotionally, and spiritually. The man doesn't have to actually do all the work, but he must be able to steer the course if his woman is going to relax into her feminine without fear.
1: You know, after looking at my work and the kind of things that I um, aggregate and put out and everything like that, I put some thought into it. And I noticed that a lot of the things that I do address on this uh, podcast are books, and very influential books, and books that make you think. So a theme that I'm going to kind of try to thread through everything that I do now is what I call a book cast. And what a book cast is, basically, is I took the view like this, and it's books teach us. They inspire us, they challenge us, and they expand the horizon. Books contain the best thoughts of the greatest minds in history. But the problem is, there are millions of books to choose from. So what should I read, and how should I invest my time reading? How do I get through all the bullshit to get to the good shit? You know, that's something that the Alpha Male Buddhist does. I will go through and apply all of my disciplines to try to get the best content to put out there in a concise manner so you can absorb the knowledge of all of these people from thousands of years. So, I dive into the best books and pull out the best shit, basically, from my Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn perspective. So, yeah, let's get into it. It's great to be back. What you just heard was a quick excerpt from a book by the name of The Way of the Superior Man. Uh, author named David Dida D-E-I-D-A. The book, I heard about it yesterday. I was scrolling through YouTube looking to do this, this episode 154, I believe this is. And I was all over and I was going to do some beats and music and just, you know, just a few different things. And I stumbled upon this video. As you know, I'm an aggregator. I, I go out there and if I see something that I feel people will really benefit from, like it hits me, then I'll put it out there. Kind of like that uh, uh, move uh, podcast I put out a few episodes back, All Is Self, I believe it, the title of it is. I just stumbled upon it. And not that it was the deepest or the most profound or anything like that, but it just integrated so many elements of what it is, of that gestalt is or, or that thing that you're trying to deal with, which is life in and of itself. But anyway, I stray. The title of the book is The Way of the Superior Man by David Dida. And what he achieves here is he achieves a viewpoint from let's say 5,000 feet up vertically like from a what 500 whatever whatever perspective is best for you but he looks at things in the components that they come in and how they relate to one another from all diverse areas which is the whole 360 view so I'm uh, it's a 10 minute video I guess it is and I'm listening to it And I'm saying to myself, and one of the, the the first thing that he brings out is he says, he gets into this topic that I very, very rarely hear people discuss or rarely hear it covered. And the way I was initiated into it, because it's not even just hearing it, but it's being initiated into it. I was working at a place called the Third Avenue Greenery, which was a plant shop on Third Avenue in Manhattan and 37th Street. And my boss was a a Sicilian dude named Tony. I think he was half Neanderthal. But the dude, I learned from watching this man the way he worked. Like if, you know, we would come in myself and my best friend, Tony, we would come in and do what's called put out the front. We'd take the plants out, the flowers out, the baskets, the cut flowers and everything like that. And that took us about an hour in the morning. And the shop opened at 7.30. So if we were not there by 7.30, if we got there by 8 o'clock, Tony already had the whole front out. That would have taken him and I an hour. And it's a whole long story, but anyway, that's I kind of throw back to that. Certain people leave certain impressions on me. But this book, one of the things that uh gets to me when I was working, here's here's why I got on the topic. I was working at that same Third Avenue Greenery Flower Shop, one I just referred to, and I was at the register, and we would in the summertime, I was there like two years, we would get these summer students from NYU and people into philosophy and everything like that. So there was this dude I guess he was was a philosophy student working at the register. So we we engaged in some type of conversation, and he says, you know, um, I was just reading this book or doing this research on this dude that he lived his whole life waiting for this one moment to come. He didn't get into much detail of what that moment was or how it it would affect him, but like he was always waiting for the exact perfect, that moment that was going to come in his life that would complete his life. And he said that moment never came, and he realized it, and he was like 90 and I kind of looked at the dude and I'm like, it, 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 it was so deep, it hit me like later on. Because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't process it. And I said to myself, damn, you know, people, wait. Just wait for that moment. That's why, and and especially they say it in Buddhist principles, is be in the moment. Right? And it sounds like cliche and everything like that, but that's really what it is. Because it's one, and the furthest myself that I can of course I think to the future and such, but... For the most part, the the furthest I look out, is like tomorrow morning, these are the things I got to get done when I wake up. Like, I I, I try to schedule myself out that I have, how can I explain it? My purpose is being fulfilled as far as what what I need to do for myself. I just built a really nice organizer kind of slash shelving cabinet to put on top of my desk. It's about six feet wide by 16 inches deep, and it's got multiple kind of cavernous little beehive type layers and shit like that shelving and yeah it's it's if you're gonna do something you're gonna do it right but anyway i I digress back back to the book he talks about how um people exist and live waiting for this moment to come and that moment's never gonna come because if you're not really paying attention that moment is the moment that you're in right then and there right obviously some moments are better than others and there's things that go on but you cannot live with an observation of a measurement grid slash reward system penalty, you know, you have to live for what it is and do be the best that you are right in that moment. So when I clicked this video on and the dude got into like, you know, how people live for for this moment where everything is complete, everything is perfect, and it never comes, it kinda rung right through me, you know, and you don't hear people discuss it that much specifically in that way. So he grabbed me real quick as far as his principles that he was laying down. And then he gets into live as if your father were dead. And father could, be, could mean, you know, your leader, your boss, whatever thing that has dominion over you, right, in, in the situation that you're in. But he says, live as your father was dead. As you guys know, my dad died when I was six years old. So it kinda, that kind of hit me kind of hard because I know exactly what the dude is talking about. You know, when you have something, a lot of times you really just take it for granted. Right If you have a lot of money, you take new shoes for granted, you know the blessing of eating you know some healthy meals all the time as, as opposed to getting spaghettios if that sometimes he said, live as if your father were dead meaning, be your own man right don't rely on any external anything external outside of yourself and to the most for the most part that's what he gets into uh, David Dida in this book, the Way of the superior man he gets into. It's you, not anybody relying on your kids, your family, your wife or anything that's happening with you. But you, there's certain disciplines that you have to dig down to. I'll tell you one thing. the I guess it's 12 or 13 points he gets into here, but it, each one drills down so deeply that they are just whole segments of how knowledge, wisdom and understanding are parsed out as we lead our existence going forward it's it's amazing and for the most part he basically hits on every aspect of it and kind of ties it into a nice cohesive conclusion so when this book was written it wasn't a happenstance or the guy just didn't say let me write a book he he really delved down this is like thousands of years of of esoteric types of understanding that he gets into here i was like really blown away and i'm surprised i never really heard of the book he gets into if you don't know your purpose, discover it now. I, you know, it's hard. It's you know, if, you should already get this, and if to, to have to explain it is kind of stupid, I guess. But some some people might get it, uh, some don't. But you have to live with a purpose, man. And then another thing that he gets into is lead just beyond your edge. In other words, whatever your capability capabilities are. Always try to reach a little further each time you delve into that discipline or whatever it is that you're doing, undertaking. Always challenge yourself and go, not too much, but just to the extent of where you're going to be pushing yourself. I guess it's the same principle as going to the gym and working out. You know, if you stay lifting, let's say you're lifting, you know, 100 pounds a day on the bench and you're doing 12 reps and you come every day and you do 12 reps, you're not going to grow. You're going to look okay. You're going to... You know, someone be in shape and everything like that. But you're not going to get bigger. You're not going to get stronger. You're not going to look better. Because you're not going up to your resistance point and then passing it. Right? So that kind of is self-explanatory. Then he gets into don't get lost in tasks and duties. Which is something I'm I'm really well aware of. I'm always working on different things like that. I'll build stuff up, tear it down, redo it, make it better, tear it down you know, and then I have a little fire chimney in the yard and I'll go out and I'll burn the <laughs> the plywood I used to build whatever. Th- there's no end to it. Like, you're always going to be striving, and that's not everybody, but, but people that are really high energy and, and like getting shit done, you know, you're always going to have a task ahead of you that you have to kind of work on and get it completed so you can move on to the next task. Learn to sit back and let it kind of come to you in the sense of, okay, well, this is one priority. I definitely got to get this done. You do it. But don't don't just pin yourself like, you know, you, you, you you're your boss is yourself, and now you have a strict boss, so you're going to execute everything the top boss wants. No. Take that 5,000-view level view of what's going on, and then make your decisions according to that. Again, all I can really say about this book is it really blew me away because it just incorporates like the Tao and the Book of Five Rings, the Dharma pot It just kind of integrates all of these different disciplines and principles. And it puts it into a very concise... The best way I could say it is it's a fuel to run your life with. You know, you get up and you need this energy to get going forward. And this is the fuel you're going to be running. This type of thinking and this type of discipline that you're going to apply to yourself, you know. It all boils down to the self. So, yeah, like I said, I just discovered this book yesterday, Listen to it, and it just grabbed me, and it's going to take, you know, the principles that are within it, I, I, I truly do understand, but I want to get it dove on a little further into this book and read it and kind of see how it edifies me and what, how it is able to feed me. So, the next thing that we're going to do right now, oh, and another thing, check out my merch, merch on Instagram. My Instagram is alpha male buddhist go check out my merch, I've, I've got uh, quite a few requests, so I'm trying to keep up with the people reaching out to me but send me an email let me know your size and your location, where you want to ship to, and it's, it's promotional merch, it's a t-shirt, it's a baseball cap, I have these little cell phone. I call them Buddhist monk bags, you know, they're just the size of a cell phone so check it out man, and if you're interested get, reach out to me, if you're on iTunes or Apple, give me a nice 5 star review with some nice comments I think on Stitcher you can put comments also, I tried uh, to do it to see how to explain it to you guys, but I don't know if there was a glitch in it, but Stitcher, if you use that, you know. Anyway, so the next thing that we're going to listen to is a book by the name of 48 Laws of Power, and that book is by Robert Greene, this is like a heavy duty book, they don't allow it in prison and shit for some reason, it's crazy shit, um... I'll be honest with you, man. I went reading through it, and there were a couple of them, like, I'd say five or six of them. Like, how to utilize your enemies, and don't, you know, like, it's, you know, kind of kind of some deep shit. And I said to myself, I really don't feel comfortable just verbalizing, you know, my observation of whatever that chapter is. You, you guys know I go deep in shit like that. And, you know, there's some real shadow called Jungian shadow shit in that 48 Laws of Power. That you have to question yourself sometimes. So, Or if, if anything. Verbalize it out loud. And say well you know this is a conceivably a way. That I'd be thinking or a strategy that I would approach. So. This 48 Laws of power is uh, some real serious shit. But there's a gentleman by the name of. His name is Pepsi. And he's from the UK. So he has experience. I think he did 17 years in the prison system. Like level 4 type shit. Out in the UK. So the cat. The cat brings it raw, man, from a from, uh, UK perspective. So I'm just going to drop down, like, uh, these recordings from... He has his own podcast. I think it's called Crime and Justice TV. And my man Pepsi really lays it down. It's interesting to hear it from, from that type of UK perspective or just another something different than what you have been raised up in. So let's give it a listen, man. Law 1.
2: I'll just read a bit. Never outshine the master. Always make those above you feel comfortably superior. In your desire to please or impress them, do not go too far in displaying your talents, or you might accomplish the opposite, inspire fear and insecurity. Make your masters appear more brilliant than they are, and you will attain the heights of power. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's
3: really interesting stuff. So yeah, you've you've read that first law out, so before I get onto that first law, I, I'll just like to talk about my experience with the book. So I was first introduced to this book in H and P. Wayland in round about two thousand and nine. There's a lot of people on the unit reading the book and other books like Machiavelli, The Art of War and such like. And um, the book came with a warning. And I remember reading the warning at the start and then putting the book down for like two weeks because I was like, shall I read it, shall I not read it? And I remember feeling like in a bit of conflict about reading it because I was going through therapy and feeling all spiritual. And uh, I I eventually took the decision to read it. And it's a a fascinating book. It documents the last 3,000 years of all the successful emperors and how they rose and how they fell and how nearly in all occasions they're always brought down by the people close to them so hundreds of years ago if you upset the king he would put your head in a guillotine and cut your head off so over the centuries people in the courts around the king and close to the king developed and devised ways of of what i could describe as mastering the art of indirectness yeah Um, And that's what the book teaches you and it's very powerful and it teaches you that if you tackle people head-on It's very counterproductive and and damaging to yourself. So we have to master the art of Indirectness if we're going to survive in a prison an extreme environment like a prison or if we're trying to attain The the heights of power. So I'll give you one example of something what I mean by indirectness so if I'm in prison And I walk into the governor's office or unit manager's office, who is a powerful figure in the prison. He's got a lot of power, authority. He's got influence over parole reports, stuff like that. Um, So building rapport with him would be something skillful for me to do to help me survive and achieve my objectives of getting out. Um, If I go into his office and I see like a golfing trophies on the mantelpiece, then I wouldn't just blurt out, oh, I like golf. So I would, I would practice the art of indirectness. So in an ideal scenario, in that instance, I would preferably orchestrate a scenario or a situation where that governor or unit manager overhears me talking about golf, like maybe on association or down the gym or wherever, I, wherever I can orchestrate the situation and that's a seed sown. Yeah, because these things take time, Sean. These things take time. You can't just, you know, do these things overnight. These things take time. But when we're in custody, we have time, you know. And it can take you years in prison to 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 to, to rise to a powerful position in the prison. And um, so I would orchestrate that situation. I would sow the seed. I would make sure he overheard me talking about golf, and then I would subtly bring it up during another another time. And then long story short, eventually, we've got a common ground. And that's what they call in the American penitentiaries a doorway. I've now got a doorway into this governor. I've now got a mutual ground. So that would be an example that I would
2: talk about. Um, like Shawshank, where he doing taxes was his doorway. Yeah, yeah. He started to to do the guards' governor, taxes and then the governor and then,
3: yeah, Yeah, absolutely, spot on. Yeah, that's what happened. And that—that's not to say that you know, in during this process, and when you've achieved that objective, that it doesn't come with you know another whole host of difficulties and challenges, like we saw in the film Shawshank Redemption. You know, it led to all sorts of different problems and such like. But yeah, so go. So law one, the law one, never, never outshine the master. Yeah. So I mean, with a lot of these laws, and specifically this one. The book teaches us about awareness. If you, as a man, do not have the ability to recognize um, and have the awareness of how you come across to others, then it's going to be very difficult for you to survive in the extreme environment of a level four, level five, level three American penitentiary. Like supermax. Yeah, it's going to be very, very difficult, um, and in the free world, in the work environment, because if you don't have a, an awareness of how you come across then you're completely blind going into all these situations so this this law is very helpful and, and important i've seen many men suffer due to the lack of awareness uh, of this law's important um important so for me i'll give you an example um it was when i was out i was i was involved in drug dealing uh, something i'm not proud of But it's it's in the past, and you know all I can do is to just try and make skillful decisions today to make amends to help society, as opposed to what I used to do, which was to harm society. But I'll I'll give you an example. So I used to work for a scouser called Terminator. He he was from from Liverpool, from Toxteth. He used to give me large amounts of uh, uh, of drugs, and he used to run his operation. In Norwich through fear violence torture and um, he he would I was working for him for quite a while for about a year and then I started I started just doing things with somebody else with my friend Rocky and we just started doing our own things and um, this this Terminator had been about for a lot of years and it had um, a kind of grip on a proportion of the 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 narcotics market in that city a proportion of it not not a huge portion of it but a proportion of it and i just started outshining him i I showed him that i was better than him i could do it better than him i started moving much bigger amounts than him and when we outshine the master and those who are superior to us what we do, we inspire insecurity in them because all people have insecurities. So, when we arouse those insecurities, um, we, we, we put ourselves in a very dangerous situation. And he just, he, this thing with him just escalated so much. He was chasing me around the city with firearms. It got to the point where I would stay in a girl's flat, leave at 11 o'clock in the morning, and within two or three hours, he'd be there. With four other people in the car, and then I'd be getting stories and hearing, getting messages that they had a gun, um, and he ended up getting hold of me and taking me to the woods, and viciously attacking me with 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 a knuckle duster, and um, that that that's what happened with with Terminator and outshining him. So with a lot of these laws, I've kind of learned. I've learned the the hard way, Sean. How could you have know? avoided that situation? By always making him, who was above me, feel more superior. So playing down my own talents and skills and abilities and always, you know, not excessively because excessive praise can, can be counterproductive as well. But to, to, to just, you know, make him feel that I needed him and, And that would have maintained the relationship and would have prevented it escalating. And when it escalated in that situation, it escalated very quickly, very quickly. And it's another great example, Sean, because what you just described, these things happen very quickly, they escalate quickly, and you're so deep in it, you're just in it. And, 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 And it's made me think of another thing that's important with the 48 Laws of power and what it teaches you it teaches you the importance of the 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 need to have presence of mind um and if we don't don't have presence of mind in in extreme environments such as prison such as prison or when we're trying to attain the heights of power it it's virtually impossible to achieve um you know power and 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 to survive you know if you're if you're in a level four yard in America and you're just you know you you've got football numbers time, and everything's going against you you're just hating life and you know but you're trying and you're training and you know you're doing your best um, but every kite that's that's coming it, it, it under the door is just negative and politics and drama you know if you don't have presence of mind, you, you you're just not going to be able to survive you're not going to be able to survive because presence of mind the the the, the an another kind of part of that presence of mind sean is the need to master emotional control and it's easier said than done uh this can take decades for a lot of people you know anger is so self-destructive so in Buddhism, they teach you that anger is the same as pouring boiling water over your head. You know, no powerful person who's been in power long term, no um, shock caller in a level five, level four, level three yard has terrible, uh, poor emotional control. These people have, you know, men who lead countries and women who lead countries are masters of emotional control and they do not allow anger to impact on 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 their decisions they they just don't they don't allow it to they have presence of mind so they can take a step back and regroup and it gives you time to, to to and space to consider your options if you've got presence of mind if you don't have presence of mind then because a lot of times in prison sean People who are skilled in this kind of stuff, this kind of velvet glove stuff, psychological warfare, it's all about isolating people and making them self-destruct without you even touching them. And then when that happens and you self-destruct, even though I'm the orchestrator of that, I'm there putting my arm around you, (laughs) saying, do you need any help? Like, you know, that that would be an ideal scenario of, of you know, you, you you being successful in in isolating somebody for whatever reason you wanted to do that. So this stuff is is it's, it's, it's very deep and it's very difficult to read the book and then for this stuff to not become like a working part of the mind. But I actually think the 48 Laws is and can be a very positive book. This book has improved my relationships with other people. It's helped me to survive in here like in the free world and in prison um so yeah, absolutely yeah and it's a great story and uh with a lot of the laws and the 48 laws of power more often than not there is the exception to the rule bar a handful and what you just described that story is is a great example of just kind of like the natural sort of evolution or of of of, of, of of a yard in prison you know people come people go things change all is impermanent you know nothing stays the same and the politics change that's 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 another thing that is a complete mind screw in prison you know the politics are this one minute but then people come and go and things change and you've got stuff with the co's and the guards you know they change they might have alliances with the mexicans or the hispanics or you know or, or the blacks or whatever group They've got alliances with that can change the politics, and then you've got to adapt. Again, you've got to have presence of mind, and you've got to have emotional control to be able to to survive and stay alert and jump off that bed every single time that door open door opens, because you can't be laying in bed when your door opens in, in those kind of prisons. You've got to be up with your boots on, you know, out the door. You know, even even in this country, in prisons, you know, in in kind of. They are violent, you know. When I was in, on B-Wing in Winchester, every 23-hour t- bang-up, every time the door opened, it used to just go off. It used to kick off. It was always, um, there was always there's a lot of stabbings, ins up on the fours, on the threes with the young lads, and it was always kicking off. And every time that door opened, you know, you would get up, put your shoes on, even if you, you're half asleep, Sean, and you even just stand outside your door just so you're not, you're not it, 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 putting yourself in a in in kind of a, a vulnerable situation but to to wrap up that first law in every law in robert green's 48 laws of power book you have what he describes as keys to power and what he says on keys to power on never outshining the master is everybody has insecurities like i said at the start when you show yourself in the world and and display your talents you naturally stir up all kinds of feeling and envy and resentments in others at the same time you cannot worry uh you know or spend your lifetime worrying about the feelings of others but robert green says with those above you and close to you you must take a different approach when it comes to power outshining the master is perhaps the worst mistake of all oh
2: we are oh, on dude. the 48 laws of power in prison law number two I'm just going to read a summary here. Never put too much trust in friends. Learn how to use enemies. Be wary of friends. They will betray you more quickly, for they are easily aroused to envy. Oddly enough, I've been writing about Pablo Escobar now for the past five years, and one of his favorite quotes was, more people die from envy in Colombia than cancer. They also become spoiled and tyrannical. But hire a former enemy and he will be more loyal than a friend because he has more to prove. In fact, you have more to fear from friends than from enemies. If you have no enemies, find a way to make them. And
3: right on that point, Sean, um, there's a, a quote, and it's just a few words, and this is from the 16th century from the mistress of Henry II of France. And it says, to have a good enemy, choose a friend. He knows where to strike. <laughs> and when I revised this law and read that, it just made it, the first thing that came to my mind was we see this unfold a lot in the male-female relationship because when that male-female relationship breaks down, a woman, always exception to the rule, but more often than not, a woman can't physically hurt a man so she knows where to strike him and she will she will she will punish her former partner in that natural process when love turns to hate um and it's, it's quite a, it's quite uh in my opinion it's quite a natural feeling to want revenge on people when we feel harmed but again i reiterate and i say again you know the importance of having that uh presence of mind and to 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 you know the god of war you sort of go and slightly off topic but into the art of war stuff The, the the god of war is someone who is the master of emotions and stratagem and 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 is somebody who 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 constantly responds and not reacts sean to an ever changing and ever flowing um series of events and situations and scenarios you know so um Yeah, I mean, there's some some interpretation here. So on all the laws, Robert Greene's got some interpretation, and it's quite kind of apt. So it says, a Chinese proverb compares friends to the jaws and teeth of a dangerous animal. (laughs) If you are not careful, you will find these jaws chewing you up. Emperor Sung, when he took the throne, knew his friends in the army would chew him up, so he bribed his fellow generals with big properties far away which was a better option than to kill them, which would only infuriate other generals. Instead of relying on friends, Sung used his enemies to further his interests. Sung used his enemies one after the other, transforming them into far more reliable subjects. A friend expects more and more favors and seethes with envy, yet former enemies expect nothing but get everything. A man suddenly spared from the guillotine is a very grateful man and will go to the ends of the earth for the man who saved him. So, you know, why Why are the people closest to us, Sean, so aroused to envy? Now, envy is the ugliest of all human emotion. It's not an emotion that we are open and transparent about admitting. Oh, I'm jealous of you, Sean. I feel jealous of you, you know. Um, And again, the book undoes the stereotype. Honesty does not always strengthen relationships. So in therapy and stuff like that, I'll be honest. Does my bum look big in this? Your girlfriend? Yes. That's not going to strengthen your relationship. So you lie. Yeah. So the reason people close to us are so easily aroused to envy. So I, I, I kind of break down envy into two things. I call one like kind of like a natural envy so we naturally arouse envy in the people closest to us if we are intelligent if we are handsome and have good looks if we are exceptionally skilled in some particular talent wealth um and this kind of this kind we can downplay intelligence but those kind of things you know naturally we're gonna arouse envy in others then we have like a different the the, the other kind of envy that i would would talk about would be kind of an envy that we purposely arouse in others. And a great example, and I know this is going to click straight in your head when I say it, because it happens every single day in the custodial prison environment. When somebody gets some good news, they run around the landing and run around the wing telling everybody and telling people who they hardly ever speak to. You know, and I'm in my cell and I've got all these people coming to my door. Oh, I've got my tag, I'm getting out. And I've got an indeterminate sentence, very despectful. Disrespectful, you probably get smashed in America for it, um, and you know. But it could be anything. It could be nothing to do with getting out. It could any kind of good news. You know, they come and they ram it down your throat, and you might be having a day from hell. And you just a And like I said, if you don't have the awareness how you're coming across, you're going to stir up hatred towards you because it's all magnified in prison. It's so intense, times a hundred. You know, and um, on the reversal, Sean, when I get good news. You know, it's it's it takes a lot of discipline for me not to come and ram it down your throat. And I'm sitting on this good news and it's so difficult, you know, and, and and I had to learn this. I had to learn this. And then I would I would crumble and cave in and I'd go and tell someone, but then I'd regret telling them because I would assess it in my mind and I would be like, What what benefit was there in telling this person? You know, there was no benefit. It hasn't improved any of my life at all. So over time, I just I just learned to 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 kind of you know have the discipline to not ram good news th- down people's throats because it it just it just upsets people, you know. It was moved, and when we and when we when we um, when we develop an awareness of this ugly emotion of envy and recognize how potentially dangerous it is we start to see the signs of it so the earliest signs once you read and study this stuff you see it all the time you see it all the time the earliest signs will be criticism little criticisms so i'll tell you something positive and you will just say something negative about the positive thing that i've told you and then straight away I don't know, it's like a sixth sense. I I just see that as danger. Now, on the subject of friends, when I was a chronic recidivist who continually committed serious violent offences and I was in and out of prison with no regard for victims of crime, no regard for the harm that I was causing society and I was selfish and entrenched with pro-criminal thinking and completely distorted attitudes about life and people and blah 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 when, when i was like that i had a lot of friends i had a wide range of friends all sorts of different friends and none of them were positive influencers whether we were stealing cars or out burgling or robbing or whatever we were doing and this is from a very early age 12 13 14 you know, all the way up until I was given an indeterminate sentence when the the courts had just had enough of me and ga- gave me this 99-year indeterminate sentence at age 24. You know, I, I had all these, all, all you know, this big group of friends. Today in my life, so, I mean, that was 13 years ago. Today in my life, I don't really have friends, yeah? And the reason I don't have friends is because I'm extremely ambitious Sean and I'm trying um I'm working on a wide range of different projects I'm trying to finish my degree which has took me many years at the open university I'm trying to finish my degree I'm working on a business plan to set up my own business I'm not going to go too much into what that is but it's kind of um legal orientated criminal justice orientated I'm working on that plan to pitch money at the end of the pitch for money for alone at the end of the summer i'm immersed in the service of others and trying to help others and trying to help people instead of harm people like i used to before i'm i'm engaged in a lot of quite draining and challenging activism with politicians and the british government to try and get things changed and fighting for victims of crime racism for two topics that i'm fighting for and um in my opinion and In my life experience, not just something I've read in Robert Greene's book, Uh, a a big circle of friends is counterproductive in me achieving um, the the ambitious heights that I aspire to in my life today, Sean. And I mean, I've got a best friend, but he's married. I'm lucky to get an email off him every couple of months. I've got people who I might go and watch the football and shoot the breeze with, uh, but they don't come to my house. Um, And if if unless I only want people around me who cheer me on, lift me up and inspire me. Yeah. Any of that envy, criticism, negativity, I'll just cut you off so quick. You won't know what's hit you. I, d- I just don't want it around me. It Energy vampires. They just get into your paws and, you know, they take you hostage and want to bring you down because people just don't like seeing people succeed, Sean. Time. Um, I remember when I was on G-Wing on the Rapt unit in HMP Wayland. It was a small unit, 36 men, 18 on each landing and I was selling tobacco and I used to go in the recess where the showers were and I'd lock the door in the toilet and I would get my book out and do all my numbers, who owes me what, um, work it all out and I'd go out in the yard collect the tobacco and someone put a note in the box. someone put a note in the box and I, I used to have like I used to have it with two people. And there was a a guy from South London and another guy from North London. And those are the two guys I used to spend all my time with. Now, when the note went in the box, I was challenged by the wing staff and it was just the last thing I was expecting, Sean. They've just pulled me and they're like, are you selling tobacco on the wing and are people in debt to you? I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I was like, oh, they know. And again, it's that presence of mind It's because it's very confusing in these extreme environments when this stuff happens because you don't know who's done it to you. And it's extremely, extremely difficult to maintain that presence of mind. But long story short, it it was the guy from South London and it was the guy that I was closest to. And I know it was him. I know for a fact it was him. Then I put a hit on him, I put a contract on him, I put 10 packs of burn. The guy, Brendan Burt, who I spoke about in the last podcast, trained to go just game as you like um and i gave him five packs of tobacco uh, and i said i'll give you the other five when when it's done and he was just like he was just where is he where is he on the yard which one is he point him out and i and, and again you know i was going through therapy meditating playing football drinking green tea feeling all spiritual and um i reversed the hit i reversed the hit because i just felt i just felt like I didn't want to be responsible for what he would do to him because he'd have really hurt him. And um, it was a time when I was going through change. Um, so, yeah, I reversed the hit. But, you know, you, you feel that betrayal, don't you? The betrayal. And betrayal is a powerful feeling as well, Sean. It's, it's a very, you know, to feel betrayed by somebody close to you is is, is, is a difficult feeling and the default position is, is revenge. I want revenge. You know, I want to harm you. Um and I'll fantasize about harming you. And and and, you know, again I, I, I keep emphasizing presence of mind to respond and not not to react. You know, because in an ideal situation, in that situation, I would you you, you play dumb to catch wise. Another thing the forty eight laws of power t- teaches us, you play dumb to catch wise. So I would know it was him, but I would still Keep him close to me. Keep 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 them close. You know, um, but it was it was very difficult, and I remember it being a very challenging time around that time because you know the stakes are high. I'm t- I'm, I'm getting two year parole knockbacks with this security intelligence. Two year parole knockback. I've got no right to release. Yeah, the parole board is more powerful than a court. A court can give Sean Atwood thirty years, but the parole board in America never has to let you out. They don't ever left, and that's the only way you're getting out unless you get your uh, conviction overturned, which is unlikely. So, you know, the, the, the it, it's it's difficult and it's very difficult, and you, you've you've got to be able to 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 deal with these situations. And the Forty Eight Laws of Power helps you to deal with these situations.
2: Yeah, and I'd like to add a bit to this then. So. I've learned over time that if you treat your friends well, you can put more trust in them. So, example, everybody who worked for me had legal benefits. If they got arrested, get a lawyer assigned to them, get bail money. You know, we all partied together after party together. If they had problems, you know, we would call each other and we would try and sort things out diplomatically. So we were very tight-knit community, there was about 200 people working for me at the peak of it. Over 100 got arrested. And out of those, only four agreed to cooperate with the prosecutor. Now, Sammy DeBull, the competitor in the XC market, he got arrested a year or so before me. 57 co-defendants, and they all agreed to cooperate with the police. Now, going back to Escobar again, Escobar's main Crime partner was his cousin, Gustavo Gaviria. Now, they they started doing small scams as kids, like um, getting the exam results and stealing fruit and selling um, the exam results to the kids and all this kind of stuff. And um, then it escalated into, like, stealing cars and chop shops and bribing things. And then it escalated into murder, murder for hire, robbing banks, killing... Some of his first murders were... The DAS, which was the FBI equivalent, basically held Pablo and Gustavo hostage and they were going to kill him. And Pablo talked them into letting Gustavo go to bring them some bribery money to let them go. Mm -mm. But then they tried, the cops tried it again on them and Pablo grabbed the cops this time and he he shot them, killed them. So the difference between Pablo and Gustavo was Pablo, when he did a deal, there was always some money left over, and whoever he was doing the deal with, it would say, you keep that little bit. It'd be a lot. but he'd say keep that little bit. But Gustavo was so stingy, he never paid anything extra for anybody, and he counted all the pennies and made sure he had everything in his in his own pocket. So Gustavo died years before Pablo, but he he treated people differently. Pablo was extremely generous and, and spread the wealth around and and really took care of his people. Mm. That's why so many people, st- you know, stood with him um until the end. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I I I've, I've been you made me kind of think about the I've been watching a lot of content recently, mafia content, Sammy the Bull when he he turned and he did the 4 or 5 years uh for 29 uh, 19, 19 murders. murders. Then he got out, but then he'd done the Arizona thing, and then he got the long sentence. He's done like two decades in prison, and he was doing it with his son. And um, yeah, I've been watching a lot of uh, American content, Supermax content, um, doing a bit of research on the Aryan Brotherhood and all that kind of stuff. And you know, in that world, and in that world you were in, you know, it, this stuff is—it's like a poker game. One wrong move and and your lights are out. That 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 and it comes from your friend. You know, it, it, it's it's um yeah, it's very very kind of intense stuff. Very intense stuff. Um, you know, and it, it 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 I liken it to poker because you know you can play a a twenty hour session down at the Vic on Edgware Road. You know, at two five cash full ring nine players. And you can have all the attributes of a great poker player and be practicing them, the staying power, the alertness, the ability to constantly make good decisions and have presence of, of, of mind, um, when you're constantly having to, 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 to digest information because poker is a game of people and they all give away information and then one wrong move and
2: you lose all your chips. Yeah.
3: One wrong move. What one, one wrong move. So yeah.
2: And do you have any examples from your life of learning how to use your enemies? Because that's the other part of that law, isn't it? As well as putting too much trust in your friends. Um, I, I, w- I wouldn't say that I've ever
3: kind of risen in any kind of power structure enough to where that I've had the lived experience to be able to answer that, Sean. But what I would say is, is, is I, I would definitely agree that you know a former enemy will, will just do anything they can to, to 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 try and please you you know if you if you save someone or give them a bly on some give them a pass on something when there could have been bad consequences because i used to give drugs to people and people would let me down and stuff like that and you know those situations used to escalate and if you give someone a pass when when you've pursued them and you know, being a perpetrator of violence towards them or sent people to be violent towards them. And then you give them a pass because you've been friends for years since you were kids. They're very keen to to prove, prove to you their worth and prove, you know, that they
2: can make it up to you. So we're going to move on to number three. Mm-hmm. 48 laws of power in prison. Law number three, conceal your intentions. Keep people off balance and in the dark by never revealing the purpose behind your actions. If they have no clue what you are up to, they cannot prepare a defense. Guide them far enough down the wrong path, <clears throat> envelop them in enough smoke, and by the time they realize your intentions, it will be too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's
3: great stuff isn't it sure the, the first couple of notes i wrote when i revised this law was without this knowledge life can get and will get very very tricky for you you know why are you going to like in the free world why are you going to tell people your colleagues that you're going for a promotion in it why are you going to tell them it's counterproductive there's no benefit in it in prison in prison long-term imprisonment there's very few prestigious trusted jobs within that prison if you've got two thousand people in the prison there might only be a handful of super super cushy really well trusted jobs yeah they're going to be very small numbers of these jobs so why am I going to tell you that or tell everyone on the landing that I'm going for for that job yeah um and again you know like like, like I said earlier I, I learned the hard way with these with a lot of these laws and uh, what this law made me remember was a story when i was on in on the enhanced unit in hmp winchester now hmp winchester is a victorian prison in winchester in england and it is a cesspit of humanity and the, when i was there i saw multiple suicides i saw 18 year olds killing themselves I saw a self-harm epidemic and a mental health epidemic of proportions that i've never ever seen before it was like something out of zombie nation there's a spice epidemic and a drug epidemic of proportions again never ever seen before and uh everyone was skinny gray gaunt um, people were suffering catastrophic delirium in their mental functioning as they went crazy and lost their minds with the long bang up um dog food and, uh, you know, it's every time these kind of establishments get condemned as cesspits of humanity by monitoring boards and the chief inspector of prisons, Peter Clark, then the narrative from any kind of media or the narrative from the local community is, so what? Prison's not supposed to be easy. So what? It's full of rapists and paedophiles anyway. And one of my missions, Sean, with my activism, is to teach and educate society specifically young society up-and-coming aspiring grassroots politicians who might only be in school at the moment the wide range of um, very young next generation academics that I've got in my network now as a result of the first podcast um, prison officers that I talk to new prison officers that i talk to police officers that i talk to mental health practitioners that i talk to social workers my mission one of them is to teach and educate these very good people that when the state harms prisoners and children in custody then the state harms society and when the state harms those said people proportionate justice for victims is not delivered um so this story when I was in Winchester, it took me, I was there two years on recall with the IPP and I managed to progress onto the enhanced unit, which wasn't a cesspit of humanity. It was a very small unit. It used to be for female prisoners, uh, mother and baby unit, and they'd kept it open. Now, out of 700 people in the prison, on this unit, there was 40 men. And these were the top manipulators in the entire prison. There was no violence on this unit. These were the top, 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 best, most sophisticated thinking manipulators. And the majority of them, Sean, were in for bad offenses, bad crimes. Now, it's not my game to jump on my high horse and start saying, you know, um, you know, demonizing people for what crimes they're in. Because that's something I feel very strongly about in the sense that for as long as we continue to demonize people, the opportunity to understand, learn and prevent things like that happening again is missed. And that's something I feel very strongly about. So I'm not getting on my high horse, but I'm just telling you that the men on that wing, a lot of them, they are in for murders with hammers, attacking women, stabbing women, torturing women, um emptying bank accounts of elderly ladies like fraudsters and vulnerable women there was a guy who ran over a child and drove off and i hated every minute of being on this unit i just despised it i hated living on there and they the first time i was on there the first time i was on there I, i i i was just i wasn't psychologically strong enough to deal with these kind of characters sean um, and they got the better of me, and they ended up getting me kicked off. And then I went back on there. But the first – this is a story. The first time I went on there, I applied to be a Samaritan's listener, which is an extremely prestigious, trusted position in the prison. Out of 700 prisoners, there might be 12, 13 listeners. And the listeners are a very tight group. Most of them are snitchers. Most of them are grassers. There was a few, a handful of good lads on there. Junior, he was doing a 17. Dan Patterson was doing a 10. Um, big Raf from Bournemouth, he was doing a 10. Those guys were staunch. Uh, there was another guy doing a 7 from Southampton or Portsmouth. He was fine. But the rest of them, all snitches. They'll all take you out the game. They'll get you parole knockbacks. And I kind of learned, when I. it took me nine months to get back onto this enhanced unit. Now, when I went on there this time, I was on my game. I was in the gym. I was training. I was meditating. I was generating and sowing good karma around the prison by helping others. Um, raised some money for Stephen Lawrence and I was in a good place. And I was, I was, I, I was game to deal with these characters. So the next time when I applied for the Samaritans listeners, because they're always fishing, they're always asking. Um, so conceal, conceal your intentions. Yeah. So I just started to, you you take people down the wrong road and they'll fish. You're going for the listeners job. No, I'm focused on education, mate. Yeah. I'm focusing on my open university. All oh, right. Like, when I'm fighting the urge, you know, to say, what, are you a policeman? You know, you you don't talk to me, but when you talk to me, you just want information, yeah? um, It's like very, very, very um, intense unit. That was a very intense unit. And um, they, they did get the better of me. The first time when I was on there, you know, I, I, it, was, it was really tough. So when I went back, I was on my game. So I applied for the listener's job. And I infiltrated them. I got in there. I didn't tell anybody I was going to do it. And I just started to constantly throw people off. And there's a Machiavelli quote, and I love it. Yeah. So he says, Machiavelli says, I lie so much that even I don't even know when I'm telling the truth.
0: And that was me. <laughs>
3: it's great. It's, it's, it's just a great quote because that was me by the time I left Winchester. Are you going to the gym tonight? No. And then you'll see me at the gym. I just lie about everything. Um, Are are, are you you playing pool later? Yes. Then I'm just making legal calls all night. And like, I just lie about everything because, you know, tech is so critically important to conceal your intentions in, in, in these environments, Sean, because you're just, it's very powerful to be a man, of few words, but a clever man, a wise man, it's very powerful. You know, most people don't have the awareness of this, like I said earlier, that awareness of how you come across to others. Most people ramble. Um, most people are constantly ramming their opinions down people's throats, um, you know, go around chatting. And this this stuff is really difficult because, you know, I'm a chatterbox. I like to talk. So in these environments, you know, I you know, I've learned over the years, you know, the 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 problem and the difficulties that it causes me um, by revealing too much about my plans. Because in prison, people will just, um, just try and use it against you. So it's very important to conceal
2: your intentions. You've homed in on a classic example there, because those few jobs that are coveted, there are some dirty tricks around them. The if, politics is insane. It's off the charts. So, like, a position comes free, like I don't know, like education aid, or something that's going to get. We we've got ten to fifty cents an hour, so fifty cents an hour job, education aid. Uh, instead of like scrubbing the trays in the kitchen, get become an education aid. So that other people who know that you're applying for that job, and they're applying for that job, they will sabotage you. Yeah. They will put drugs in your cell. They will yeah. drop a kite and tell the guards, to go and shake that guy's cell down. They'll find those drugs. Yeah. Or they'll say, this guy's dirty. Test his piss. Next thing, you will be on lockdown. They'll get you out of the way. Yeah. So if you are going for a good job, don't tell anybody about it in prison because that stuff's like gold dust. People want to get that little bit of money from the job so they can buy the things from the store. You're getting in the way of that collateral damage yeah you've got you've got to learn to control your tongue
3: you've really got to learn um you know this discipline and it's tricky you know it's tough but you know if if you can if you can master this then um you'll be successful um in 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 potentially achieving the 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 realms of power and surviving in these kind of environments
2: yeah so Do you have a contradiction to that one then? Um, To be honest, I'm not too
3: hot on the contradictions, Sean. It's never, they they never, whilst the couple of times I've read the book, I've never really got into the contradictions.
2: There was never a time you made your intentions clear and it worked out for you in prison.
3: I mean, like, you know, like I said earlier, there's always the exception to the rule. You know, and, and we spoke about, or you spoke about the story of that, uh, of a great example of kind of the natural evolution of the unit, the yard, you know, people come, people go. So um, there's there, there's always going to be a, a, an exception. Um, I, I, you know, I can't really think off the top of my head, but there were, I mean, like everyone knows I'm going for parole, so that, you know, my intentions are clear there. But I'm, even with that, Sean, I, trip you up. even with that, I mean, like you get the date. I mean, you're just buzzing. I mean, it's as, as an indeterminate sentence prisoner. I mean, that date, and it's not even a release date, but that's the only time you ever get a date. Yeah. So you might have waited 20 years for that date, 15 years, 10 years, five years for that date. And if you don't get that parole, it's, it's, it's two years until you get another date. And you're always waiting for that date. You get that date. And I remember getting it and just keeping it to myself. I, I kept it to myself for about five or six days, and then I told, I told my friend Sammy Snake Eyes. Uh, shout out to Sammy Snake Eyes down in Basingstoke. Yeah, I told my friend. He 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 was happy for me. He was like, "Yeah, nice one." And then, um, but yeah, even with parole, you know, you know, right to the last minute, you know, people will sabotage you the day before you get out. You know, people, people. Like the law in this country, as a life sentence prisoner or, or an IPP or an indeterminate sentence prisoner, old two-strike lifer, automatic life sentence, whatever it is, um, after you have the parole hearing, the the, the the Ministry of Justice have to tell you the answer within 14 days, yeah? So that 14 days will come and go and the officers don't tell you anything and you've heard nothing from the parole board. And even 30-year prison officer veterans have told me when I was in that situation, like, this is like torture. It's really cruel. Like They should at least tell you. And, um, you know, right to the last minute, you're just being tested by the prison, you know, other prisoners. But my point is, in that situation, you're in a lot of pain. You're in a lot of pain, fear, anxiety, uncertainty, helplessness. Hopelessness, it's a wide range of intense emotions, Sean. But people on the unit are like enjoying it. They're, like they enjoy it. Like they buzz off it, feed off it, you know. And when you get the answer, you're being released on Monday. The other 39 people on the unit aren't all coming up to you going, oh, well done, congratulations. But if you got the two year knockback, everybody. They're all gossiping. Oh, did you hear about it? all looking in your cell when they go for dinner? And that's prison. If you, you know, break the law and commit crimes and go to prison, this is what you're going into. You're going into a negative, extremely negative environment where every day people are trying to pull you towards um, negativity and pull you down. And this, Sean, is where rehabilitation in England and Wales is, is virtually non-existent. Because anytime you try and display and show change, the tide of negativity towards you is so intense um, it, it, it
2: it it makes it virtually impossible. Because you're considered lame then if you're doing something yeah, positive yeah so I've got a few little stories on intentions then so in terms of release, I was about to get released at the minimum security. You know, got the most privileges and thinking it's going to be an easy ride now to the gate. I get assigned to the kitchen, clip a room, scrubbing the trays, blah, blah, blah. Take a break, sit on a crate. And a guy who's murdered two people in prison says, that's my seat. Get off it. So if I get off it and I'm a punk, everyone's going to punk me out. I'm not a problem with everyone. But stay on it when I'm a problem with just one person. Yeah. He's killed two people in prison, but I'd rather have a problem with just one person. So, he's running his mouth, because I stayed on the seat, saying he's going to come to my cell and shank me. I've got a workout partner, this guy called Iron Man, and he's telling me, he's like teaching me martial arts in this little rec room. He's like, yeah, you know, when he when he um, comes into your cell, just do a snap kick. He's got an iron rod in his leg where he's been shot by the guards <laughs> and all this stuff, and then go through his eyeballs when he leans forward. <laughs> well, I'm not a fighter, you know. So I'm thinking, oh, what am I getting into here? Nightmare. Yeah, so... Absolute nightmare. So he's running his mouth. Night after night, I'm thinking he's going to come in. He eventually does come in, but he had completely concealed his intentions. I didn't know that he was about to get released as well. So he comes in, I jump up, assume the position, ready to fight. And then he's got this look on his face. And I'm thinking, maybe he's pretending like he's not going to fight me just to get me close to sucker punch me. Yeah, you never know. So I'm keeping him at a distance. But then he says, look, I'm about to get released. I've done like 30 years. You know, when I kill those guys, it was, it was when I first came in, it it was either me or them. If I kill you, I'm getting released. I'll never get out. I'll get the death penalty. and, then he said, all I know is heroin. Every day of my life, all I've done is heroin in here. How am I going to survive when I get out? he got a really sad look on his face. Yeah. And I ended up giving him a hug. Let's go over to... Law number four. Yes. So this is 48 Laws of Power in Prison. Number four. Always say less than necessary. When you are trying to impress people with words... The more you say, the more common you appear and the less in control. Even if you are saying something banal, it will seem original. If you make it vague, open-ended and Sphinx-like. Powerful people impress and intimidate by saying less, the more you say the more likely you are to say something foolish.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great law. And I uh, just going over my notes here. The first thing that I wrote down when I revised the law was if you want to learn about somebody and you want to learn a lot about somebody, just listen to them. And they'll chat away and chat away and chat away. and And they will just reveal so much. Because most people are open books. And I said it on the first podcast, um, when you asked me what advice I would give to somebody if they went into prison for the first time. And I said, don't talk to anybody. If somebody engages you and talks to you, then be polite and civil, but don't talk to anybody. Um, if, 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 you know, eye contact, eye contact in prison is very, is a, it's a thing, you know, um, if someone engages you in eye contact, um, you know, hold their gaze. Don't show weakness because you show that tiny bit of weakness, they're gonna prey on you. Um, so, yeah, just listen to people, and you will learn so much about them. And then on the reverse side of it, don't, um, you know, if you're in these environments for the first time, just don't, don't be a chatterbox because you're gonna you're gonna bury yourself, Sean. And there's a, there's a quote I wrote down from this law, and I think it's fantastic. So it says, oysters open completely when the moon is full, and when the crab sees one, it throws a piece of stone or seaweed into it, and the oyster cannot close again so that it serves the crab for meat. Such is the fate of him who opens his mouth too much and thereby puts himself at the mercy of the listener. And what came to my mind straight away when I read that was parole board hearings and talking to probation officers as a long-term prisoner. Now, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of parole board hearings in England and Wales every year. And in America, who lock up more people per 100,000 people than anywhere on earth, I can't imagine the numbers of parole hearings they deal with over there. But men men, um, who go on these parole hearings bury themselves all the time by talking too much. And you will not know that you're talking too much and burying yourself because the three-member, risk-averse parole board panel who you have to um, you know, bypass to get out. Um, they've got your life in the palm of your hands. They would just be nodding and smiling sweetly at you. And you won't, you just won't know Sean that you're, that you're, that you're burying yourself. So, I mean, a parole board hearing is not a situation where I would promote being open ended or Sphinx like or vague, you know, but you would talk about in a pro hearing your hopes, your dreams, and your future. Um but with what you have to do, you have to say less than necessary. So people, when the parole board asks them a question, they ramble and they go on and on. And because pa- no panel reads a 2000 page dossier, they go by instinct, they'll read a few key reports and they'll go by instinct. But people bury themselves because they go on and on and on. So what you have to do, you have to do what the law says, and you have to give short, specific answers that answer the question and have an impact. So you would say to me, why do you want to go to a rehab, which I'm looking at as straight release rather than two years in a semi-open prison? Um, And I would say, because all of my crimes are drug-related and I'm a drug addict and the residential rehab Mom has the expertise and the professional staff to help me with my addiction and the DCAT establishment doesn't. Short specific has it impact answers the question. And that is not to say that there is not a time and a place, Sean, for a two or three minute speech. But if 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 I was doing that, I'd be talking about hope and dreams and my future. Do you know what I mean? And then like on the landing with probation officers now currently in modern 21st century britain in the criminal justice system i don't know how it happened chris grayling the cuts austerity the, the continuing screw ups of successive failing justice secretaries who are absolutely clueless about the criminal justice system and don't have a law degree between them and who have educational backgrounds in Edwardian, Elizabethan history and agriculture and fiddling expenses. <laughs> but like these, pe- it's just so bad the probation service that it's, we've got ourselves into a position where they are running the show. They, they have all the power. You have two key reports. You have inside probation and outside probation. It don't matter how much of a model prisoner you are, how long you've gone without ever having the luxury of having a, a bad day, you know, how exceptional your prison disciplinary record is. If they don't recommend release, there's not many boards in the land that are gonna release the person, Pro- probably none. You know, it's so difficult. So when you see these people, and you don't see them all the time. It's hard to get to see them. You will have a thirty-minute window, a forty-minute window, to 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 impress them, to win them over. And it's very difficult. And it took years and years and years for me to learn um, how important this is. And it's helped me with negotiation skills and stuff like that, tapping into people's vanity. You know, the master and the art of indirectness. For me to ask for something off you sean then i have to preferably indirectly point out to you how what i'm asking off you benefits you yeah so when i go in with these probation officers when other people when people go in there they bury themselves because they they say too much and they're rambling and going on and on and on now within your dialogue when you're rambling when you start showing denial minimizing your index offense that you went to prison for not taking responsibility Blaming others, do that in a parole here, and it's game over. You're not going home. There's no way you're not going home. You know what I mean? So, the fundamental rule that I kind of uh, go by now in those situations is to not, with a with a probation officer, I'm talking about on the landing, on the on, on the yard, um, is 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 to never volunteer anything negative. Uh, what you have been up to? I'm going to the gym, I'm meditating, I'm building a relationship with my family, I'm doing my Open University, I've done entered two writing competitions, um, things are going really well for me. Why am I going to offer negative? Now, the other thing that is very important is we, relevant to this law with regards to people burying themselves with, without the self-awareness of saying too much, saying, you know, more than necessary, is re- with regards to security intelligence. So if you've been away 20 years, I mean, you can have a 100 security entries, yeah? If you've been away five years, you could have 20, 10, you know. Now, a parole board, if you've got a lot of these security entries, now security entries, it's intelligence. So you haven't got an adjudication or a governor's report or any um, documented disciplinary procedures against you but it, and it's not even a write-up it's security intel and then it'll be graded a b c d or one two three four as to how you know if a if a co saw you walking down the and with with a joint you know that's pretty that's going to be an a a one because he saw you yeah so it's like you got the security intel now people read it they go on the parole here and they talk to their probation officer and they say they minimize it and they deny it and they go oh that's not true people are stitching me up snitches and all that and again I reiterate you go on a pro here and do that you'll bury yourself so the correct answer to when the pro board says to me without rambling and saying too much the correct answer when the pro board challenge me because they will challenge you on it about selling tobacco on the wrapped wing the correct answer is that's true mom and I'm not advocating admitting things you haven't done but I'm saying like if you have done it um, you know the correct answer is that's correct mom and you spin it into a positive so that's correct that did happen but I'm really grateful for this experience mom because it this experience taught me that running around the prison being dishonest and breaking prison rules and um, you know deceiving people and getting people into debt and the power and control that gives me that is very similar to the behavior that led to me coming to prison in the first place it's the same power and control that i get from drug dealing and it's the still same as breaking the law outside and without um this experience of getting caught for this then i would have never learned um i would have never learnt this wisdom so i'm really grateful uh, for learning this and moving forward that is how you answer a challenge on selling tobacco to a three member risk averse Pro Bowl panel to the point specific that has an impact, no rambling, yeah? And you blow them away with an answer like that, Sean. Blow them away.
2: The more you talk, the more your words can be used against you. Why arm people so that they can take you down with your own words? Classic Mm. extreme example of this is Brendan Dassey. If anyone has watched... Making a murderer. So the state of Wisconsin has put a guy in prison for 18 years, Stephen Avery, for an attempted murder rape that he didn't do. He's got exonerated after this long struggle. And he's about to get 30 plus million in compensation when a woman, a local woman, goes missing, trees a whole back. So rather than pay him 30 plus million. They put the murder on him. The first check was on the governor's desk. Now, they've got no proper evidence against this. And they've got nobody that they're interrogating who can corroborate it. So they got Brendan Dassey, a teenager with a limited IQ, snatched him from his school, told him, we'll let you go home and watch WrestleMania if you just confess to killing trees a whole back. And that's what he did. They just coerced him into doing it and he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Mm. When I started getting protected by the New Mexican Mafia, they said, look, if you get pulled over by the police, leaving our house, you can tell them you're in a hurry. I don't want you to search my car. If, if you're going to charge me with something, I'm exercising my right to remain silent. My lawyer's Alan Simpson. That's the lawyer I later got for my case. Who did wonders for us? So, someone did get pulled over leading, leaving the New Mexican Mafia's uh, place. And um, she just couldn't keep her mouth shut. And I never saw her again. So, when you are in a situation like Brendan Dassey, I mean, it, 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 they said, because they knew the police knew she'd been shot in the head. Mm-hmm. So, they said to Brendan, What did you do to her head? What did Stephen do to her head? Stephen Avery, the, the co-defendant. And he, Brendan just says, have we cut her, huh? Because that's how innocent he is. Yeah. He's like, no, Brendan. What did you do to her head? We uh, punched her in the head. And then they're like, no, Brendan. Just tell us who shot her in the head. Was it Stephen? And he goes, yes, Stephen shot her in the head. Now, everything that came before that was left out. Yeah. So in court, they said, quote, quote, Brendan Dassey, Stephen shot her in the head. Got ya. His own words used against him, framed by the police. So you can put all this, you can say all this stuff before you say the one thing that sinks you and all that stuff that you say will not even be counted. Yeah. They'll just take the one tiny little thing you say and sink you with that. Yeah. And that's what they did to that poor kid. And he's still serving... A life sentence to this day. And I've rather written a book called Unmaking the Murder About This. Mm-hmm. Each chapter is one of the methods that the police and the prosecutors and the authorities use to frame <clears> these, <throat> these two innocent people.
3: Yeah, I've got I've got it on my Kindle. Um, when you done the when you did the giveaway at Christ, Christmas time. Yep. And I downloaded them all uh, then and I put a few put a few onto uh, my mum's tablet as well. But yeah, it's another just listening to you there you know it just reinforces the critical need to have presence of mind mastering emotional control mastering self-discipline and controlling your tongue you know very very a lot easier said than done sean you know easier said than done but um you know genius is perseverance you know practice repetition you know just you, you know you you work work on these things and you you make a uh you know an effort you make a, a you know a daily effort you set yourself little goals and targets you know i'm gonna keep my mouth shut today <laughs> do you know what i mean just, just keep your mouth shut um and at, at the end of this law wrapping it up uh robert greens wrote keys to power like he does at the end of every law Power is in many ways a game of appearances. And when you say less than necessary, you inevitably appear greater and more powerful than you are. Your silence will make other people uncomfortable. Humans are machines of interpretation and explanation. They have to know what you are thinking. So be very careful and disciplined in what you say and carefully control what you reveal so they cannot
2: pierce your intentions or your meaning. And there's a quote from Shakespeare that ties into this. Thou doth protesteth too much. You get people who are guilty of a certain thing. Yeah. And they start putting all this info 100%. out there that, that it's, that's the opposite. So that's true, yeah. in prison quite often, you'll see someone running his mouth saying, that guy's a snitch, trying to get everybody to go and beat that guy up. Yeah
3: starting rumours about people. But at the
2: end right of the now, day, so. the guy calling him the snitch is the snitch. He's trying to yeah. try and hide that yeah. he's a
3: snitch. I've seen that all the time. Oh, that, that guy's a, a
2: sex offender. Yeah. So that's why in prison, there's a saying, show us the paperwork. Yeah. So if you're going to accuse someone of something, you better have the paperwork on that guy's case to back your claim up. Otherwise, you're the one that's going to get attacked. Yeah. That was the rule. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And uh, that highlights the, I mean, it's not like that here in England in the sense that, In prisons in England and Wales, I mean, just do not underestimate the potential, um, you know, damage and conflict that can be caused from a rumour. And this is something I noticed during and observed during a long-term imprisonment was I met a couple of people and they were experts at doing this kind of stuff of just starting little rumours about people, spreads like wildfire. And this is one of the techniques that they use to isolate a man and turn the people close to him against him and with the aim and the objective of making that person self-destruct without ever laying a finger on them. The velvet glove, you know, it's, uh, yeah, so rumours, starting rumours. And, uh, uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, I suppose uh, we don't have the, those kind of politics in these these prisons in England and Wales where th- there's consequences for doing that because it is wrong isn't it it's wrong to, to, to start rumors uh, about people I've seen uh, it
2: used <laughs> a deadly effect so if you're watching this you're out in the world how's this going to apply to your life whatever kind of a situation you're in um, you know job interview um, talking to somebody about you know whatever you're trying to achieve don't give them more than is necessary because it, it will just be used against you
3: yeah just quickly on that point sean uh what you said there is it, it it's spot on because what i said about the parole here and exactly the same in a job interview job you know you you, you what are you what what are you going to bring to my company i'm gonna add value to your company sir with my experience in the retail sector very simple Do you know what I mean? That is more powerful than me rambling for five minutes, (laughs) you know, with the the multiple opportunities within that five minute ramble of dialogue to bury myself. Because I need to say one thing where that person can just be like, no, this is not the guy. You know, I'm going to add value to your business. I'm going to boost revenue, and I'm confident I can do that. Check my TripAdvisor reviews.
2: If you were applying for a job with Escobar, and you rambled, he would just straight whack you. (laughs) He says, "This guy's hiding something." (laughs) Yeah, he definitely
3: probably whack me because I'm a (laughs) chatterbox. Yeah.